This morning's passage comes from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. Amen. Please have a seat. Keep your Bibles open, if you will. Some of you may just close them, grab them again. We're going to be looking at that passage together. Uh, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And let's pray and ask God to meet us as we look into his word. Gracious Father, thank you that we can open your word and know that we are hearing from you. That your word is alive and active that your spirit is with us, bringing your word to bear on our lives and our hearts. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage, that's what we ask you would do, that your spirit would give us eyes to see you, give us ears to hear you, and change our hearts, Lord, to love you, to delight in you, to follow you more faithfully, more joyfully, to know you for who you truly are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I had the privilege, um, duty, responsibility, depends on how you look at it, of visiting the dentist. Uh, It was such a meaningful experience that I get to go back next week and possibly the week after that as well. I'm not a big fan of the dentist. Not many of us are. And it's not because dentists are mean people, usually. Uh, it's because, I've met some, just saying. But not, not, you know, not always. But 
The reason I'm not a, a, a fan, though, is because I'm pretty sure that every time I go to the dentist, I'm going to receive bad news, uh, painful news, expensive news that I would rather just pretend like I didn't need to know and it could just, you know, go on in blissful ignorance. And yet, as uncomfortable and potentially painful as that dental visit is, we all know that it's very good for you. Uh, Not only does it promote health, uh, the cleaning, shaming me into flossing more regularly, things like that, Uh, the alternative of not going and finding out what's going on in my mouth uh, could be much, much worse. Well, looking at this passage in Matthew 25 this morning is a bit like a trip to the dentist. Now, I have no medication to get you through the sermon this morning. (laughs) I do hope and pray that it's more pleasant than a root canal. Uh, But the text before us has the potential to be very painful, and yet it's very healthy for us to look at it carefully and listen to it. It declares to us that when Jesus appears in the end, he will judge all people, vindicating the righteous and condemning the wicked. That's an uncomfortable subject. That's a painful uh, thing to think about, very unpopular. And many of us would just rather go on through life not worrying about those kinds of things at all. And yet, it's vital and healthy for us to think about these things. One, because it's true. And two, because it's through Christ's final judgment that he's going to establish justice in the end. And that's something all of us long for, whether we realize it or not. Is longing for justice. As we live out our days in a fallen world, uh, marked by unfairness and betrayal, by brokenness, disease, sadness, and death, the, the kinds of atrocities we see online and, and read about in the papers, things that happen across the globe, we all long deep down in our hearts for justice, for the world to be made right once again. One author describes it like this. We dream the dream of justice. We glimpse for a moment a world at one. A world put to rights. A world where things work out. Where societies function fairly and efficiently. Where we not only know what we ought to do, but we actually do it. That's an exhilarating dream, isn't it? To think of the world working the way that it ought to, even though it's, it's pretty elusive to us. It's one of those dreams that we wake from too early, and we wish we could just go back to it. But that doesn't mean that we don't work hard for it or fight for it, as elusive as it is. And you know, whether we're marching on Wall Street against carbon emissions or posting an article on Facebook in solidarity with some cause that we're interested in, whether we're adopting the orphan, or helping to feed the poor and the homeless, giving money to relief organizations, or or investing in new companies, new businesses that are going to create jobs, fighting against human trafficking, fighting for 
gender equality in the workplace. We want a better world. Our, our social conscience is very active. And our young people are very optimistic about the kind of change that they can affect. A recent study on the millennial generation, so that if you were born between 1980 and 2000, you're what we call the millennial generation. A recent study on, on that generation noted that when it comes to activism, quote, only the president ranks ahead of them as the person they say is most capable of making a difference in the world. Those are big dreams. They might be slightly disappointed at times, but those are big dreams. We long for things to be better than they are. We work hard for it. But what we don't always realize or want to admit is that real justice is not only doing what is right and vindicating those who have been wronged, it also means punishing the wrongdoers and bringing them to account. In other words, the justice that we rightfully long for cannot be established apart from judgment. Now, we recognize this at a human level. Of course, there are always some who would say that it's never appropriate to judge anybody in any way, despite the fact that that itself is a judgment uh, being rendered. But most of us recognize, you know, that, that the world requires that kind of, uh, that kind of situation. It, it, one who, who might be against the idea of judgment can, can hold that up only so far as you're, no long, you're not the one in the shoes of the victim. You know, then all of a sudden, judgment doesn't seem like that bad of a thing. Somebody rear-ends you on Route 9 and they don't want to pay for it. Judgment doesn't seem that despicable anymore. We want somebody to come in and render a verdict in our favor so that the wrongdoer can be put to rights. We see that society requires that. In fact, when tragedy strikes, we expect that kind of response on behalf of our leaders. You think of uh, President Obama's words following the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. Quote, Make no mistake... We will get to the bottom of this, and we will find out who did this. We'll find out why they did this. Any responsible individuals, any responsible groups will feel the full weight of justice. And he's not talking about helping them feel better about themselves so they don't do this again. So Carr's looking at the death penalty, most likely. So justice requires judgment at the state level. This is just common sense. It's how society works. We get that. And yet we also know that the state uh, could be just as unjust as anything else. I mean, that's the story of human history. One tyranny being overturned by another one. And, And so when the institution that's supposed to be guarding justice turns out to be promoting injustice, well, then what do you do? You throw your lot in with the new regime. Or maybe you take things into your own hands. We make ourselves the judge, jury, and executioner. And yet even then, we know how that plays out. It just feeds into this uh, constant cycle of retaliation and violence that itself is a far cry from justice. For true 
lasting, world-changing justice to be established in this broken world. For all wrongs to be made right once and for all. We need more than state governments or violent revolutions. We need more than nonprofits and international coalitions. We need more than grassroots activism and social media campaigns. We need someone with the wisdom and authority and moral virtue to render a just verdict on this world and the power to execute it. Someone who will both vindicate the righteous and condemn the wicked. We need the kind of judge promised in passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We need Jesus. And we need him to do what he says he will do in Matthew 25. If we really want justice, the world to be made right. In the story of Matthew's gospel that we've been working through, uh, we are quite literally standing in the shadow of the cross. Uh, In the very next chapter, following where we're at, the plot to betray Jesus will begin to unfold. He will be arrested. He will be brought before a jury, a, a council, the Jewish court, tried and condemned and handed over for execution. Which is ironic considering who he claims to be in these verses this morning. The one before whom all nations and all peoples will stand in the end to receive their verdict. Jesus is, as he says in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, the Son of Man. It's a title he's used throughout Matthew's gospel, which echoes the promises of God clear back in Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. God's promise to establish his kingdom and to vindicate his people, to rescue them through one, quote, like a son of man, one who shows up as a human, a son of Adam, if you will, a human who will receive divine glory and authority. Dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, treating him like God. And so you have this one who shows up in human form who gets the glory only God deserves. Only Jesus fits that picture as fully human and fully God at the same time. And and in Matthew 25, he's pointing us forward to the day when Jesus is going to begin to fulfill, fully realize that vision in Daniel 7. 
when he comes in his glory and all of the angels with him and he takes his seat on his glorious throne when he sits down for judgment. And he tells us what to expect in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, the imagery there brings us back to another Old Testament uh, book, uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, which is another passage Jesus has made several allusions to throughout the book of Matthew. In that passage in Ezekiel, God is criticizing the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, who instead of feeding the sheep, are feeding themselves and abusing the sheep and, and, and criticizing those sheep who bully and exploit other sheep. He says, quote, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus is the son of David who is that one shepherd. And there again you see both divine and human coming together. There's going to be a shepherd who's going to do what God does in judging and separating the sheep. Jesus picks up the imagery of these books to tell us what he's going to do when he appears in the end. And when we look at the story, the picture in Matthew 25. It's not just the sheep of Israel that are standing before him. It's all nations and all peoples. It's a scene depicted several different ways in the Bible. Think back to Matthew 13, separating the wheat from the weeds in the end, or the good fish from the bad fish in the parable of the net. Or you think of the harvest in Revelation 14, or the great white throne in Revelation 20 with the book's opened its final judgment judgment day as we often call it and it's something that every single one of us will participate in we will be there and though that event usually strikes terror into our hearts when we think about it it's through that event that god will accomplish the longing of our hearts for the world to finally be put right, for justice. He will put this broken world back together again by doing what is right and vindicating those who've been wronged and by punishing the wrongdoers and bringing them to account. Everyone's going to stand before God in judgment, but that doesn't mean everyone will be condemned. That's an important distinction. The word judgment itself is a neutral term. It could be good or bad. It all depends on what the verdict is. You can stand before a judge and get a favorable verdict, not guilty. You could be vindicated. Or you can stand before a judge and get an unfavorable verdict, guilty, condemned. And so judgment itself is a neutral category. The question is, what verdict? And we see both verdicts in this passage. Jesus addresses those who are vindicated or in the right, the righteous, first. 
the sheep who are on his right. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom for you, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So those who find favor before God, who are declared not guilty and vindicated, they will inherit the kingdom of God. They will have a share in the future world that God is making, that he has prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. This is language of heaven. But it's bigger than what we often think of when we think of heaven. This is more than, you know, pie in the sky floating around by and by type stuff. This is a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, as Second Peter puts it. It is the world made new. It's the world as God intended for it to be. In God's presence, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing for the sake of God's glory forever. Forever. It's a world where, to return to Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. There's an interesting picture, isn't it? The wolf and the lamb chilling. Not being chased by each other and demolished like on National Geographic or something. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand into the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is a picture of shalom, of peace, of justice. A world where everyone knows God and therefore knows what it looks like to honor him with every part of life. And everyone does it. Because he's with them and he's for them and they have been rescued from sin and death. That is justice. A world that in wherein all will be made right. But that also means that nothing wrong will be allowed to remain. For everything to be right, nothing wrong can be allowed to stay. So wrongdoing wrongdoing against God, especially what we call sin, must be punished. It must be dealt with for this world of justice to come true. And so we see a second verdict in our passage, what we call condemnation. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So if the reward for the righteous is what we think of and and often call heaven, the reward or punishment, rather, for the wicked is what the Bible often calls hell, eternal judgment. And it's pictured here with eternal fire. Or early in the chapter, it's pictured as this outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, will will there really be fire 
or will it be dark? How do both, you know, how do both of those things happen? Are these just metaphors? Probably they're just metaphors, but they're metaphors for unspeakable horror. They're metaphors for something far worse than what we can imagine with the idea of eternal fire or outer darkness. The Bible uses a lot of different pictures to describe this, the terror of God's eternal wrath, the essence of which I think is, is captured best in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. The day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. It's a picture of eternal conscious punishment away from the presence of God who is life. So it's eternal death. That's the destiny of those who do not know, who reject Jesus Christ. Is that justice? I mean, is sin really that bad that we got to get that unthinkable on it? Is it really just for God to send some to hell and not others? Some would say that what Paul's describing here and what we would describe as a classical understanding of God's wrath and justice is, quote, misguided and toxic. That if God is love, how can he harm anyone? And yet we protest in the streets when an unarmed boy trying to surrender to the police is gunned down and no one seems to be holding the officer who shot him to account. Not, not because we're mean, but because we love. Love for that boy demands justice and recompense. Love and justice are not at odds with each other. And if that's true that on earth that justice requires recompense, then why isn't it true when the offense is against heaven? And every offense is ultimately against heaven. When we do wrong on earth, it's never just a, a horizontal thing. You know, God, out of this, this is between me and him. It doesn't work that way. Every offense is at the same time and always also a vertical thing. Because it's God's world we are living in. It's God's rules that we're breaking. It's his order that we're going against. It's his love that we're exploiting in order to, to gain something selfishly. It's his image bearers, people made in his image that we're harming. And it's his name that we're ultimately profaning when we live in this world on our terms instead of his. And so justice requires doing what is right and, and, and vindicating those who've been wrong, but also punishing the wrongdoers and bringing them to account. If the wrongdoers go unpunished, justice has not been served. Which means that without final judgment, God is not just. That's the implication. 
but he is. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. And he is also compassionate and merciful and loving. Those things are not against each other. They all are expressions of who God is in his holy, loving character. And Jesus will return to put all things right as the just and merciful judge. The question is, and the question that Jesus wants us to ask as we look at this passage is, what kind of judgment will we receive? What verdict should we anticipate on that day? The answer that he gives on how to think about that is actually somewhat surprising, uh, given what we know from the rest of Scripture and given what we are used to talking about and thinking about in our evangelical culture. If I were to ask you this question apart from Matthew 25, and maybe to put it in the the language of the old evangelism explosion question, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? I mean, our expectation for a a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, born-again Christian is something like, Jesus died for my sins and I'm trusting in him. That's, that's what we expect for that kind of answer. And for good reasons. The Bible's very clear that that is true. That it's not something that we can do to earn our way to heaven or to make it up to God. That, that all our righteousness is, is like filthy rags before him. But Christ is perfect and Christ is enough. And his righteous life and his substitutionary death we're enough both to, to deal with our sin and to, and to credit his righteousness to our lives such that if we cling to him in faith, we will be saved. We know that to be true, and, and, and we're, we're very careful to specify that it's not on the basis of works or anything that we do that we are able to go to heaven. We think of passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And so, in a passage like this, where the question is, what verdict will we receive as to whether we will enter into heaven or not, we expect that kind of answer, most of us. Uh, We expect to find our beloved doctrine of justification by faith. And justification is itself a legal declaration. It is a clearing of the charges, a vindicating, a declaration that we are not guilty through faith in Jesus, not our own works. And yet when we look at Jesus' answer in Matthew 25, it's not the answer most of us are expecting. It's not contrary to or in contradiction with justification by faith. And we'll see that. But it does give us another angle. It fills out the picture of what faith in Christ really looks like. And we ignore what he says here to our own detriment. Potentially painful words that our soul desperately needs to hear. So look with me again at verses 34 to 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation 
of the world. And then he gives the basis. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And apparently, we're not the only ones surprised by that answer because, you know, they go on to ask, what do you mean? Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then we see a similar conversation where he explains to those on his left while they're exclu- why they are excluded from the kingdom and sent into judgment. Same conversation, similar conversation, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the basis that Jesus gives here on whether one is excluded from or included in God's kingdom is what we do with these little ones, the least of these, my brothers. Instead of appealing to their faith itself, Jesus points to the fruit of their faith as evidenced in how they cared for the least. And so the critical question, who are the least of these that he's talking about? And and how is our care for them related to our care for Christ? If that's the evidence he's talking about here. Many, many people read this passage as a blanket mandate for the church to care for all poor and marginalized in the world. That it's in the face of the poor and the outcast that we really see the face of Jesus. And while it's absolutely true that all people bear God's image and that God has a heart for the orphan and the widow, for the poor and the stranger, and that he calls us in many places in the Bible to deal fairly with and generously with those who are in need in this world, That's not exactly what Jesus is talking about in these verses. And there's a couple reasons for that. First, whenever we see Jesus use the word little ones or least in the Gospel of Matthew, he's always talking about his disciples elsewhere. And second, he tells us who the least are in verse 40. He says, the least of these, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters. 
And again, that always refers either to his immediate biological family, but more broadly to his followers, his disciples. Those are the ones he calls his brothers in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels. And so Jesus is talking about taking care of his family, of his spiritual family. A family that is sent into the world with the message of the gospel and who will therefore often find itself facing hardship and persecution by a world that doesn't want Jesus to be king. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. A family that in its love and loyalty to Jesus will show kindness and mercy in caring for one another as the needs arise. Now, that doesn't mean that we are free, therefore, to ignore needs in the world outside of the church. By no means. Uh, But Paul, I think, captures well the emphasis of Matthew 25 in Galatians 6.10. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the emphasis we find in Matthew 25. And it's in our care for one another in the body that we see the face of Christ. Throughout the New Testament, it's the church wherein God displays his likeness, his beauty, his glory. Every, every human is made in the image of God, but the church is the dwelling place and display of God's glory. And so care for Christ's family is care for Christ. Neglect for Christ's family is evidence that you don't really belong to Christ. Persecution against Christ's family is persecution against Christ himself. Think of Jesus' words to Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 5. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? To neglect and persecute the body of Christ is to neglect and persecute Christ. Whereas to care for and love and meet the needs of the body of Christ is to care for and love Christ. Jesus will weigh our works in the end. Not as the basis of our salvation, but as the evidence of our faith particularly how we treat his followers, a measure of the genuineness of our faith. So how we live matters in light of eternal judgment. How we live matters. You cannot separate faith from obedience. Sometimes we're so afraid of being accused of being legalists that we almost downplay the call to obedience because we don't want... We don't want to base our salvation on our works, and we don't want anybody to accuse us of doing such. And so we we downplay it. Jesus doesn't downplay it. He emphasizes it throughout Matthew. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You cannot separate faith from obedience. 
And so I think that the searching question for each of us here, what are we doing to care for Christ's family? It's a good question for us to ask. Not because if I just kind of change my behavior here, I can pull the fast one on Jesus and and look like I'm, you know. No, it, it reveals to us what's really going on in our hearts. That's why we ask the question. When we see a brother or sister in need, is our heart moved and do our hands open up? When we see our brothers and sisters persecuted around the world, which is happening in unprecedented ways today. It's estimated that in the last 200 years, 150 to 200 years, there have been more conversions to Christ than in the 1,800 years prior to that. And yet, at the same time, there have been more martyrs for Christ than in the 1,800 years prior to that as well. What are we doing to come alongside and love our persecuted brothers and sisters? I mean, to be honest, sometimes you feel helpless. You read about the crazy stuff happening in Iraq and Syria. It's like, what do we do? I'm still trying to figure that out. Pray. We can pray. We can find people who are on the ground and come alongside them and pray and and help. We can make things known. We cannot ignore it. That's what we cannot do. And when we find ourselves being those people who are in need, are we willing to let others know so that they can love you and in doing so love Christ? For instance, there's a a reason that as a congregation we have an elders fund because we want to love and tangibly care for people in our congregation and, and beyond but especially the household of faith. And sometimes that means coming alongside. There's no shame in that. That's love for Christ. 1 John 3.16-18 through tells us, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And that's where the motivation for justice ultimately comes from. It comes from love. And it's in God's justice that we see his love more clearly. The most surprising part of Matthew 25 is that not everybody is sent to the left. That there are some who are vindicated and invited to come into the kingdom. How is that possible? The only way that anyone is invited to inherit God's kingdom is because Jesus has taken The judgment against our sin on himself. Sin deserves to be punished and it will be punished for those who reject Christ. But it has already been punished for those who trust in Christ. This eternal judgment, this final condemnation 
that every single one of us deserves has already been poured out in advance and in full on Christ in our place. And that's the only reason we're invited into his kingdom. And that's where Matthew's gospel's headed. That's the next scene in the story, heading toward the cross. The shepherd who judges at the end is also the lamb once slayed for sins. That is a beautiful mystery. That the shepherd who's going to stand in the end before us, making that separation, is the, is the, the lamb who gave his life already in advance for our sins. When Jesus appears in the end, he will judge all people. He will vindicate the righteous and he will condemn the wicked. And as uncomfortable as it is for us to look at and think about that, it's good for us. It's good in that it reveals to us God's holiness holy majesty that he must deal with wrongdoing justly. It assures us that one day all things will finally and fully be made right. It reminds us of the depth of God's love for us, what Christ was willing to endure on our behalf that we might receive a favorable verdict in the end. It exposes the extent to which our faith is genuine and bearing fruit in the lives and caring for the lives of others, especially the household of faith. And it motivates us to spread the word, to tell others, those who, apart from Christ, are facing an eternity of judgment and separation from God. It motivates us not just to tell them the bad news, but the good news. That there is a shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. That his blood was really enough to deal with their sin, no matter how bad, how ugly, how shameful it is. His blood was enough to cleanse every corner of our hearts and to purify our lives and to make us acceptable before the Father And that he offers eternal life to all who will take hold of him by faith. And that he's coming again. And he will be faithful to make all things new. We have motivation. We have cause to rejoice and to be busy. In making Christ known. He's coming again. Gracious Father, as we look and listen to your words here, we pray again that your spirit would unite our hearts with faith. Lord, would we hear and respond. Lord, for those of us who do not know you and do not want to know you or or who just aren't even sure what to make of all of this, would you gently, mercifully speak truth and life into our hearts to let us see you and worship you for who you truly are and to find 
freedom and rescue from the evil, the sin, and the death that marks life apart from you. For those of us who are embarrassed by the idea of judgment, Lord, would you help us see it from your eyes as a king who has made a world and who has done everything to rescue it and who yet is still rebelled against, Lord? And would, would we not be angry, but would our hearts be broken for what that means for a world that doesn't know you and would be, be motivated to make you known to them? For those of us who, who know you and yet who are terrified of the thought of standing in your presence, remind us of your grace. Remind us that we might repent from sin that we hold on to, the sin that entangles us. And remind us that we might rest and enjoy you, Lord. That you're not tapping your foot, watching the clock, waiting for us to get our act together and then you'll love us, but that you have loved us to the uttermost through Jesus. That you are with us and that we are secure in you because of Christ. Lord, would you remind us that our hearts might rest and rejoice. Lord, I pray that as a congregation we would, in fact, be motivated to make Christ known. Would you break our heart for the lost? Would you break our heart at the prospect of people we know and love facing a Christless eternity? Lord, may we not be able to wink at that idea. We know that you're the one who has to do the work, but Lord, would we be faithful and available? Would we be courageous? Would we love them enough to make Christ known.